sometimes I feel like a high-priced babysitter. <laughs> exactly. And the biggest joke is human nature. Keeps you in business. <laughs> it does. Hello, and welcome to the Startup Stack. I'm your host, Lewis Farrell, and this week we're talking to Jason Gore, founder of Newberg Gore. Jason is an executive coach and an entrepreneur. Full transparency, my co-founder Ben and I have worked with Jason and his partner Brian for years as our coaches. He's also someone with unparalleled insight on what exactly VCs and CEOs are thinking and fearing and asking for help with right now. We covered a lot of ground, so here's Jason. Well, you know, I wanted to start off today and ask you um, really about how you came into coaching. You know, you know, were were you born into this? When did you when did you know that? you know, this was the career for you. Um, how did you become a coach? I, let's start there. Uh, well, I really knew I wanted to go into business because I liked working with teams that were, that had a, had a vision that wanted to work and collaborate together. Um, but things really clicked for me coming out of undergrad. Uh, and I went into undergrad to look at persuasion and debate, how people uh, learned and resolved issues together. Um, after school, I joined a consulting firm working with the Department of Defense, and I my very first assignment was with a nuclear power plant. And I'm, I was 21. I was paired with a nuclear subcaptain, and we were basically going in to look at how the were you underwater. <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, it was above water. Um, we weren't actually allowed on the plant, though. Uh, <laughs> okay. We, we 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 would meet in these little rooms uh, right about two miles away. Yeah. But, so I show up and I get a call um, and basically my partner that was supposed to be asking all the questions and doing all the interviews calls in sick that day. It turns out it's really hard to arrange these interviews. And so the partner in charge at my consulting firm said, you got to have these interviews. And I'm like, look, I don't know anything about nuclear power plants. How am I supposed to you know, interview nuclear power plant engineers? Like this is ridiculous. And he basically said, hey, just ask open-ended questions, paraphrase what you're hearing, and really just talk to them as human beings. Like, find out what their issues are in layman's terms. Don't try to pretend anything. So, you know, I interviewed the first person and, and talked to them and, you know, very quickly learned that they simply just don't have the parts on hand. They got a $3 million budget for parts. And if, they, if a certain part breaks, they need to helicopter parts in from another plant or kind of a central repository. And so the plant's done for, you know, a half day at a time. And that's a lot of money. Talk to the next person, kind of hearing the same story over and over again. So I basically package up what I'm hearing. I present it to the management. At this point, the subcaptain's back. And so he does most of the presentation. And they're like, wow, this is brilliant. If we just take a loan for $2 million and have these parts on hand, we're going to save like $5 million in, in downtime costs. And I'm like, why do you need a 21-year-old kid to talk to your engineers and tell you exactly what they told me? This mm -hmm. makes no sense. And so my assumption actually was that it was just a lack of listening, a lack of curiosity, like something was going on. Um, I joined the telecom space, found the same thing, that in the telecom space, the, the, the same issues where information was not getting passed and problems were just not getting resolved. So I went back to business school to figure out essentially why the people in charge were bad listeners. Uh, and my mm -hmm. assumption was that they were just kind of being in charge because and, and promoted because they knew how to get stuff done. They knew how to push through things and kind of bully their way through execution. 
But in business school, what I learned was that actually wasn't true. In fact, that the problems were worse the lower you went in the organization. And that essentially people were not problem solving together. They weren't talking to each other. They weren't they weren't working well together. And there's just a whole bunch of money left on the table. And, and so so you're seeing all these business problems. And but how does it click for you that that coaching is the career path and the answer here? Uh, because for me, you know, in- versus versus consulting, which is yeah. what you're doing, which because I guess a lot of people could hear what you're describing and be like, this is why the world needs management consulting. Totally. Well, first thing to say is like what I, I was shocked by just the role of a facilitator, just by playing traffic cop in the conversation mm-hmm. and getting people to listen to each other and talk to each other in a structured way that they would get so much more done. But then the question was, hey, why do you need a 21-year-old kid? Like, why can't you do this yourselves, right? And so so then I started to teach communication skills and leadership training and whatnot. Um, and what I found there is that the retention was relatively low because people would learn these skills, but then they would go back into toxic environments. And so where coaching really came up from for me was, okay, this is also a cultural issue. And so if we coach executives at the top and they model behavior, then we can start to create a culture that where everyone can be resolving problems together in a more effective way. Um, and so that's how I ended up at startups as well. Hey, tell me a little bit. So, okay, so your 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 career is kind of morphing from management consultant to to executive coach. You've you've been to business school. Could you tell me about what was your first eg- like formal executive coaching? job. So someone ha- has paid you to be an executive coach. So tell us about that first experience. How, how, and how did you get it? And, and uh, Well, the very, I mean, it was gradual because I started spot coaching. I started coaching executives on one negotiation or one issue. Hey, we're having this issue. Would, would you come facilitate? A lot of my earlier early work was one executive was having an issue with another executive or one executive was having an issue with a vendor or supplier and they would come bring me in as a negotiation expert or an expert in difficult conversations. And I would just coach them through that issue. Um, And honestly, I found it once again to be really interesting because the fundamental principles were relatively easy, but the, the person would get lost in because it was really important to them. They would get caught in their emotions, but they would end up going into these conversations much more confrontational versus in a collaboration set. And so a lot of these early coaching experiences were changing people's mindsets. And then through changing those mindsets, their behaviors would change. And a lot of the mindsets they would get stuck in were frankly, because of their history. And so here I am, we might be negotiating, you know, buying parts for a nuclear power plant. But what this person was dealing with was they were pissed off about the unfairness of something and they were angry at the other person. So we had to kind of deal with the emotional issues too. It's, uh, you know, people say that business is not personal, but it really is. Uh, And it's hard not to bring all of ourselves and all our history, the good and the bad into our conversations. Um, so it started that way. And then what I realized over time was people kept on calling me back and say, Hey, I got another little issue. Uh, I was actually really resistant to coaching because I liked the consulting projects. I got to walk away 
and go and have big adventures. Um, but over time, I really fell in love with startup entrepreneurs, with the, the CEOs that were figuring things out from scratch and building a culture from the ground up. And I just found my, myself really drawn to longer engagements and really committed to their success. And that's where I jumped into coaching full time. And and then let's jump to Newberg Gore, you know, the the company you founded with Brian. Tell me a little bit about how that came together. I'd be particularly interested in what were some of the the really tough challenges you faced early on mm. starting the firm? Uh, well, honestly, starting the firm was a very organic process. Uh, Brian Newberg, my partner, um, is uh, just a very relational person, and he got overloaded with clients. Um, and so he turned to me and started giving me clients. And then he saw that I was structuring my programs really different than his programs. And he's like, what are you doing? And so I shared the structures that I was using mm-hmm. and how I was holding people accountable, how I was helping them identify their blind spots. And he started doing that with his clients and getting very different kinds of results. Mm-hmm. Like it, he was doing coaching in a very different way than I was. And ultimately we kind of blended our styles mm-hmm. and the, the way that he brought the relational and the deeply personal and kind of human pieces. And I brought the blind spots and the structural pieces. That was kind of the, the secret sauce. And, you know, it's what has really fueled our development because we really have a very structured process, but that's a very deep process. And we hold all our coaches accountable and really do a lot of quality control. Um, so that our clients walk away having made some really big changes. Um, but I tell you, this is, it was, we, we learned some hard things along the way, mm-hmm. um, especially because this, the startup world can be very challenging. Jason, I was wondering if you could tell us when the right time is to hire for a startup founder to hire a executive coach. I, I think about my own experiences working with coaches in my experience, it seems to me that it's always been when kind of a couple things are happening. Certain things at the company are going really well. You've probably achieved product market fit. The company is growing really quickly. While at the same time, there's some pretty big challenges, um, usually on the people side. Maybe that it's with your own leadership. The team's growing really fast and you're dealing with more senior executives. Um, maybe there are challenges with uh, co-founder dynamics or investors. And so what I'm wondering is, is every time you get a new client, the CEO's hair's on fire when you're first talking to them? You know, I think people have different choices of when they need an executive coach. Some people think they never need one. Uh, what I can say is it's never too early, but sometimes it's too late. <laughs> um, but some good indicators for when you hire a more senior executive coach um, might be when the company is shifting, when you're shifting from being an individual contributor to managing a team and have to shift that role, or when things are shifting in the company. I mean, in general, in the startup world, if I were to have to put a marker of time where the cost benefit really makes a difference and really makes sense is, I would say, after Series A funding, where you have money in the bank, you're going to be growing your team, you're going to be managing some people out. You're going to be really pushing on, on product market fit and scale. That, you know, I would say is a, a nice indicator. Um, but the other one is as you feel like you're 
basically over your head, which might be from the start, um, is a good time to get a thought partner. Well, you know, one of the things that has really made a deep impression on me, you know, when I was at Andreessen Horowitz working with uh, the team there, Ben, one of his famous things that he, you know, kind of insights that he always talks about is that you hire for strengths, not lack of weaknesses. And I actually think about that a lot when I think about co-founding relationships. And I think about it in the context of Ben and I and why it works so well. And I think one of the reasons it works so well is um, not because either of us are perfect, not because um, we don't have lots of weaknesses. It's actually just that we are very aware of what each other's weaknesses are. We have accepted those weaknesses. We're very aware of what e each other's strengths are. We, we want to encourage each other to, to go do the things that they're good at and they like doing. And we don't try to get each other to do the things that we're, we're less excited about and we're less good at. It. And, you know, that's taken us time to, to figure out together. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about co-founders. And I imagine that you coach a lot of solo founders. How do you help executives that don't really have that co-founding relationship and don't, you know, don't have anyone to lean on? Well, I think that most don't. You know, when you look at the averages, most founders are going to go through three complete executive teams before their exit. And, you know, when you're a seed stage company, you can't really attract or most people can't attract talent that is going to grow with the company. Um, you just can't incentivize those folks early on and can't get them in. So, you know, you get who you can. And also, frankly, first time executives, they don't know what a good team looks like. They don't know how to assess or manage a CMO. And so they might get a CMO with a heck of a resume who is not performing, but they won't necessarily know it. So, you know, it makes it hard for them to navigate that. And a lot of the work I say, I think in the beginning is yes, being a thought partner and for sure helping them think through things and uplevel themselves. But one of the biggest things is to ha helping them uplevel their team. That's a fascinating statistic about how most companies are going to go through three complete executive teams on their way to exit. And I'm wondering, is, is that a healthy company? Um, I mean, in some sentences, it must be if they're exiting at all. But, you know, we also read in the press all the time about companies shedding executives and and how, you know, that it, it, usually we, we talk about that as a sign of a, a very unhealthy company. I, I, you know, but is that just a natural, healthy process for companies as they grow? I think it is. I mean, you know, some companies might get lucky where you get the corporate athletes that that scale up and scale themselves up with a role. But even those folks, when you look at a functional expertise, you know, you need different things at different stages of the company. Like at seed stage, you need that corporate startup athlete that can do a thousand things and figure things out and hyper creative, you know, moving into A and B, you know, you're looking for someone who's done it a thousand times and has good pattern recognition and really knows like you could throw a lot of marketing dollars that aren't working. Someone else comes in and I'm like, oh, well, you're doing it wrong. You're spending your marketing dollars wrong and they just change a few things and all of a sudden that dollar in becomes $3 out versus what you were having. And then later on, you know, moving into BC, you know, and I'm just making broad generalizations here, but you need someone that has a Rolodex and knows how to build a team, right? They need to 
build out not only a team of three or four, but they have to have to run a team of 30 or 40. And that's oftentimes different people. Some people can scale, but from what I've seen, the vast majority of times we're, we're actually looking at people that are drawn to different stages and they have different strengths that are, that apply at those different stages. This is a good reason not to give out titles too early. Yeah. You know, you give that CMO position out early on, it actually just accelerates that process of having to change people out because then when you want that person to move, someone else will only come in, you know, at, with a certain title, it's, it's really hard. So in the beginning, I just always advise just head of, uh, is allows that flexibility. This is certainly a problem I've struggled with. And, you know, if I was going to rearticulate what you said and, or rearticulate how I imagine this scenario playing out, you know, you've started a company, um, you hired people that are good athletes. Um, the company has found product market fit. You're starting to grow. Um, everyone feels pretty good. You're probably friends with all these people. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we need to do different things as the company is growing and scaling. Potentially some of those executives or, you know, different leaders on the team, uh, we need to up level. Yeah. But that must be tremendously challenging. I personally um, have been through these challenges For sure. of, you know, how do, how do we transition to, to different leaders that we need in the organization away from other people that we've really worked with and we've gotten to that place and we've trusted? I mean, how, how do you coach people through that? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing is to support them in having conversations. You know, so many times things get to come to a head and people are surprised. Uh, you know, I see a lot of co-founders that don't give each other negative feedback and don't call out, hey, the way that you're you're filling your role is not working. You know, the CTO who's really amazing problem and hyper creative and really gets the high end but is not managing their team and all sorts of cultural problems are arising. Like, let's have that conversation. You know, if you really like the person and you want to keep them on, then simply hire the expertise around them. Like in the CTO example, you hire a VP of engineering to run the team and you let the CTO be creative and do what they do best. Um, but if you don't have those conversations, things come to a head and then oftentimes it's too late that there's too much resentment, too much built up tension. Um, and so I would encourage people to have the conversations early and really explore. I think the other thing to say is, you know, consensus driven models and in 50, 50 splits are, are scary. Um, I much prefer a 51, 49 split where, there actually is clear control. I mean, just recently, I had two co-founders that were arguing and had completely different visions of the company. And, you know, their lead investor was like, hey, we can't get involved here. Like, we can't pick sides. You guys have to figure this out. And one of them was gracious enough to step down, but they could have taken the company to the ground with that fight. Um, and so you know, finding business partners that you agree with, having really clear decision models and also really clear conversations about, you know, when someone steps into the CEO, do they have the right to fire their co-founders? Um, and if you have that conversation earlier, it's going to, it's going to really clarify problems. And it's also going to make the company perform better. You know, this is fascinating talking about executive transition, co-founder issues. I'm wondering if there's other very common pain points that you see um, as an executive coach that 
that you we could we could chat about? <laughs> uh, tons. I mean, I mean, I think the biggest one is especially for younger generation CEOs. They want to be friends. They want to be peers. They're they generally are conflict averse in general. Yeah, big generalization. And they don't like giving feedback. And so they generalize feedback. You know, if I think about, you know, notable CEOs that, that don't seem conflict avoidant, like uh, Travis from Uber, you know, yeah. did, you know, or, um, well, we don't even have to keep going, but it's like, the, uh, <laughs> you know, but, and it doesn't feel like the world has shown particularly favorable to those types of CEOs. So, yeah. um, so what's, what's the right balance? You know, here's my answer to that. It's soft on the person, hard on the problem. Yeah. Um, this is really a, a negotiation technique that I that um, and uh, came out of the book Getting to Yes. Um, and it's like you could be really hard on the problem and really kind to the person. You know, even if it's to the point where I want to see you up level, I want to see you succeed here, and you're not. Right now, you're not fulfilling the duties of this role as I need them. How do we get you there? When do we know? And if you don't get there, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Like those are scary conversations. And, you know, you, you, you look at like having that conversation with your technical lead who you can't afford to lose. And so you yeah. tend to soft pedal. Um, and that tends to be more costly in the long run. Well, I'd love to bring this back to Newberg Gore, right? So, you know, how have you thought about holding your other team members accountable as you've grown. And actually, specifically, I would love to understand, like, how do you measure success at your firm? How, you know, like at a firm level, at a partner level, mm-hmm. at, on an engagement level, like when you're working with a founder, how do, how do you measure success? How do you think about that? Well, I think Newbergore is a very different kind of company because we are not money or growth oriented. We are a small lifestyle firm to be honest you know this is a firm i'm going to have forever this is my retirement plan i expect to be coaching ceos forever whether it's from my home or on a sailboat from the bahamas who knows right so for us honestly like brand reputation is the most important thing right this is a a company that i want to have and hold for a long time it's dear to my heart and that means client success um, that we want to see our clients extremely happy and grateful for the coaching, and it's very valuable to them. These are very busy people, and if they're not extracting value from that, not only the money but the time is even more important. Uh, then we got to know about it, and so we have really a lot of quality control. Every few months, we have a second coach talking to all of our clients to making sure that it's optimized, and if they're not happy, shifting it or even changing out coaches. But also, you know, the external changes. We're not just counting on the CEO to give that internal report. We're looking externally and getting progress reports, you know, where, hey, this is the things that the client is trying to change. How are they doing? Do you see growth? Is more growth needed? Right. And really trying to get the people around them to give direct feedback. Um, And when we see growth, then, you know, the client's happy, the people around them happy, and the company is going to be higher performing. You know, I think that one of the things that is really important to us is we really are picky about who we take. Um, we want to enjoy the coaching relationship as well. We want to be with growth-oriented folks that have high ethics. And so we'll turn a lot of clients away, especially if they're coming in, you know, a board member calls up and says, hey, this CEO needs coaching but doesn't want it. Yeah, our answer is that's not us. 
that's not that's not how we operate. Yeah. I was going to ask what makes a good client and is the answer as simple as they want coaching? I think it's more to it than that. Um, you know, we have a lot of clients that say they want coaching, but then they get into it and they don't show up. You know, it's like they got they they actually have to show up for coaching. Um, not as a passive participant on a train, they're in the driver's seat. They're coming to the meeting um, with agendas. They're proactive about getting the most out of a coaching relationship. Um, that's what we're looking for, right? Is people that are not only willing to grow, but are proactively focusing on growing. And plus, you know, ethics and other factors that play out. You know, I'd, I'd love to transition the conversation into some trends you're seeing. It feels like now more than ever, the world is really changing quickly. Yeah. We've got COVID. We've got an increased awareness of racial inequality. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what, but, but also just, you know, technology companies and just how they're so rapidly changing our landscape. You know, what are, what are you seeing today that's, you know, different right now than it was six or 12 months ago? What, what, what also, but like, how is the world different than it was 20 years ago in, in, in how, in how you coach? Well, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't know, didn't know what coaching was, right? So we had to educate clients about what coaching was. Nowadays, when people come to us, they're not trying to find out what coaching is. They're trying to pick a coach. Mm. They already know they want to coach. And now they're just comparing between different coaches. Um, and by the way, on that note, I would just say chemistry and trust are the biggest factors, Right. If those aren't there, then I don't care what kind of resume someone has. It doesn't matter. Um, right. You have to be able to really have chemistry and fit. Um, I think that something you didn't say is the VC markets have also changed. Right. And the expectations and growth expectations are changing. And that's one of the big things with COVID that's really shifted things is the expectations around what things look like and how much money you could spend in what how much runway you have you know right now everybody's expecting expected to do more with less mm -hmm. um one of the things that we had to figure out as a coaching firm was who is our client right the vc referred us to the ceo is the ceo our client is the company our client is the vc our client the the answer is so clear it's the ceo i re-educate the vcs on the beginning of every single phone call um you know i basically say hey really love talking with you here um, everything you say to me, I'm going to tell the CEO, don't tell me anything that you don't want the CEO to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love, I love that. You know, 90% of the time they say, Hey, I've already told the CEO everything I want to tell him anyway. So all you're going to do is help me articulate this and clarify it and have a second point of contact. Um, you know, the place that's even trickier though, I'll say is when we're dealing with co-founders, mm -hmm. right? One coach is coaching the CEO and let's say the CMO. Um, the one place that we get into trouble is if the CEO is going to fire the CMO, we tell the CEO, don't tell us. If you tell us that we're gonna, you're going to fire the CMO, we will put ourselves on leave of absence until you resolve it, right? Uh, because what we can't do is we can't be hiding secrets. Yeah. from each other. Now, if you're, if you're disappointed in this, in, in the other person, we will support you in having that conversation directly. But if you put us into a position where we have to hold secrets from another client, then we have to stop. Um, and so all of that is, is specified in advance. 
Uh, and I have to say, these are these are lessons that are hard won. If you could go back in time and give the young Jason Gore some advice, <laughs> what would be the one or two pieces of advice that you would give yourself? Because you, you actually couldn't even instill all this knowledge because it was hard won. Well, I feel really lucky, Lewis. Um, I have a job I love. I have clients that I really respect and appreciate. Uh, and I feel very lucky to be where I am, even through this whole COVID time. Um, I work out of my house. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I get to travel wherever I want and work from really anywhere in the Americas. I have a great team. Uh, literally all the clients at the firm are amazing. Um, so I feel very fortunate. I will say that it's been a long haul, that there is no coaching industry. There is no track. And, you know, if I was telling the young Jason uh, about this, I'd be like, you better really want this because it's not an easy path. Um, but I really did. People often ask me my advice about starting a company. And I give very similar advice where I say, if you're thinking about starting a company, when you come up with a, an idea, I want you to then ask yourself, if this is the last job you ever have for your whole life, for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, are you really excited about that? Mm -hmm. That's how excited you need to be about this company. That's the bar forever. One thing I love about this is I grow so much. You know, I, just this morning I was giving, I was coaching someone who was absolutely overwhelmed and I'm overwhelmed running two companies right now. And, you know, the advice I was giving him as I was giving him like, hey, I want to let you know, like, I need to live this too. And, you know, outing myself at the same time and, you know, making some real big commitments for myself right now. So, you know, as we were talking, I'm like, you know, hey, I'm going to give up alcohol in the evenings and I'm going to start waking up at six in the morning every morning. And I'm going to start building my own routines because I, in the last two weeks, I've lost those routines. So it really keeps me on my toes as well. I'll, I'll say that. You give advice all the time. And it sounds like sometimes you also try to follow your own advice. What's the piece of advice that you give all the time that's the hardest for you to follow? Uh, you know, right now, I, on my new company, I don't, I haven't built a team. And so I'm in the weeds, uh, and doing a lot. And it's, uh, it's really, really challenging times because I'm doing that. And I'm also running a more mature company at the same time. Um, and I would say if I was coaching myself that I would be telling myself that I've signed up for an impossible task, uh, that, I need to hire an operator for one of the companies. Um, and right now I'm in the, in a interesting financial position because neither company really has need for a full-time operator. Um, but I, I have my head in the sand a little bit where I'm going to end up burning myself out if I don't change something on, on one of these two companies. Um, so I'm keeping a pretty careful eye on that. And I'm essentially going to slow the new startup co company down and basically deliver uh, I'm going to slow the the roadmap down by about 50% um, to try to accommodate that, um, especially with all the things that are changing. Um, but I do want to go back to something, uh, you know, about about you know talking to younger coaches, mm -hmm. and that is to know your swim lane, like figure out what you're good at, what you could leverage, what area you already know, and to start coaching inside of that area where you're living that advice, you know, that advice, you're not just making it up and, and then, you know, extend into other swim lanes a little bit more slowly. I think some of the best coaches come out of industry 
you know, they come from the marketing or the sales background. And then, you know, you start by, if you're in sales, coaching other sales executives, right? And then from there, you branch into marketing. And then from there, you branch out. Um, but to really be clear about your offering and, and what it is that you're really good at. And I think as you're saying earlier, Lewis, like pick a swimming that you love, something that you really love doing. Um, so it's a, it's a hard role, but I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Jason, this was awesome. Uh, you're a great friend. I loved this session and this interview. Thank you so much for being on the wait, startup wait, Lewis, stack today. You can't leave this without talking about your, your experience with coaching. Like you, you, you got coaching from my business partner. My answer to that question and more are in this week's bonus episode. It's up now if you want to listen to it. For more on Jason and the coaching business he's built, head to www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. Thanks again. See you next week. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.